Welcome to Passion to Power with your host, Michelle Zeitlin. She's a creative producer who quote-unquote wears many hats. She's also a talent and literary manager and founded the company Morzap Productions and Management. She develops people and projects across all media. Her guests encompass the gamut, from artists to authors, actors to activists, programming executives, development executives, and A&R. Michelle Zeitlin is excited to share her tips and tools for success through her conversations mostly via Zoom during quarantine. Please welcome Michelle Zeitlin, Passion to Power. This is Michelle Zeitlin. I am the host of Passion to Power, and today I have another badass female guest. I'm so excited. And I'm not the only one that calls you a badass, by the way. Her name is... <laughs> Marissa Levy, and I'm going to turn the mic over so that she can say hello and introduce herself. Marissa, I know you from working at BET, which is a Viacom CBS company. I think I actually met you there before Viacom and CBS merged again. And you were at the newly refurbished fancy Viacom West Hollywood office, if I remember that correctly. I knew I was going to meet with a hot shot with lots of style, so I had my thigh-high boots on and my leather fringe skirt because I needed to impress you. Anyway, I'm going to turn over the mic now. Marissa, I would love you to give me a little snapshot. Uh, What you call yourself, your title, what you feel most appropriate being called, the correct pronunciation of your name, and any other fun little tidbits in the next two minutes. Go. Ooh, okay. Um, I do remember you looking extra stylish, so I did take note. Um, hi, I am Marissa Levy. Um, I I guess the most recent title would have been Head of Unscripted for BET Networks and BET Plus, which is a direct-to-consumer uh, streaming service. Um, I am a content strategist and development and production executive. And a little tidbit, uh, I speak of many languages very poorly. (laughs) So I noticed on your LinkedIn bio that you went to a unique university that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Is it in the Netherlands? Hogeschool Board of Kunst in Utrecht. Yeah. (laughs) Say that 10 times, guys. Okay. (laughs) I know. So that that means basically the School of the Arts based in Utrecht. And um, all of media in the Netherlands is based in Hilversum, which is where I lived uh, before moving to Amsterdam. And I went there to get my master's. So it was a master's of digital media and documentary filmmaking. And I did a, a master's thesis film there. Um, and uh, it, was, it was an incredibly positive, good experience. And when I went, I had just come off of two years basically in India. So, you know, you have to imagine uh, I was a girl in my early 20s and uh, unleashed on Europe. So it was it was an incredibly positive, formative, empowering time in my life. You're, you're clearly a very, uh, a very good speaker. You have no problem. And I like I like all of those. We're going to use those on the bumper sticker, those bullet points. Um, <laughs> no, no tongue tying here with Marissa. OK, let's back up. So. You went to school to get your master's of digital media, but what what was in India? Um, I think I think the easiest way to backtrack is just yes. to say that I grew up in Texas, and in Texas, 
you know, there there isn't a lot within the realm of possibility in television and film. And I was always obsessed with TV and film, especially documentaries growing up. And so you, when you grow up in Texas, it, you, for the most part, don't even have the consideration that you're going to go to school elsewhere. Like, you know, I, I don't think I was broadly aware of other schools outside of the state while growing up. But the, the best I could do in Texas was Rice, at Rice University, which is predominantly a science and engineering school. And I loved my experience at Rice for the simple reason that I didn't have to pick one thing to be passionate about. It's a smaller school, so I was able to do a little bit of everything. I you know, worked at the television station and helped get that off the ground. I was a DJ at the radio station. I was an editor at the newspaper, you know, and I was able to do a little bit of everything. And my thought process was, and honestly still is, that I'm gonna do the things that I'm passionate about. And when I see an opportunity, that fits something that excites me, I'll have that skill set already in place because I'm passionate about these various things. And so when I was at Rice, um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And again, there was no realm of possibility that you could go into TV or go into film. I knew no one who did that. You know, my mother was a school teacher, my dad sells insurance. Um, I am literally as disconnected from the industry as you could possibly be. Um, and so in my mind, the only way to be able to do documentary film was through academia. And so I had applied for every fellowship under the sun, academic fellowship, to take me abroad and fund me to buy camera equipment and do documentary films all under the, the auspices of academic research. So the first of which was to go to India. And I, I had um, two different fellowships. Um, to, to go to India, the um, National Security Education Program, which is a through the government actually, and another one uh, for, uh, and, and another one as well for research in India, and was able to use those funds to buy a mess of camera equipment and a big Pelican case for all that equipment, and went out into rural India and made my bleeding heart humanitarian documentary films and you know it was me and a translator in a village for weeks on end and uh, i loved every minute of it and and my thought being was if i can turn this into something maybe it'll be a career but if i can't then i'll accept that it wasn't meant to be and i had a job waiting for me um at accenture consulting uh, that I put on hold, you know, and I was like, this is my chance. This is my chance to try and make it work. And I used the film that I made there to become a finalist for a Fulbright in the Netherlands. Which oh my, master's okay. Program. For those of you that don't know, that's a really big honor, the Fulbright. <laughs> and it was through their, their Arts Fulbright, which is an incredible program. And, uh, and that's what got me to the Netherlands. And then while I was in the Netherlands, um, I received um, a Rotary uh, Ambassadorial Fellowship to work on a doctorate in South Africa. And when I was in South Africa, kind of it was the same thing over and over again, that when I was in South Africa, I was studying for a doctorate and this is when the film industry was blowing up. And all my friends kept asking, why are you in school? And it'll age me a little bit, but it's when, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio was doing Blood Diamond and 10,000. Which is, by the way, one of my all time favorite movies. So you were there in South Africa? Yes. And so I got to meet most of the crew from there. They had the most incredible footage. The Blood Diamond. I know. <laughs> and, and so I, um, to my parents, um, 
dismay, I dropped out of my doctorate program and joined a feature film set as a key set PA. And uh, from I'm Fulbright Scholar to PA, huh? Yeah. And I'm still friends with the, the producer to this day. He, um, and I, you know, the fact that he gave me this chance and his, we've talked about it since then. Why, why this girl who has documentary film experience but had no feature film experience, who obviously was a foreigner, why would you hire her? And he had given me a question in my interview. And I feel like this is some of the best advice I give to people that I mentor and people who, you know, I oversee who want to be noticed is he said to me in all seriousness, he said, <clears throat> excuse me, I am looking for the kind of person who when we're on set, I say, look, there's poop over there. And the AP says, tell me what kind so I know what kind of bag to get. <laughs> yeah. And I looked at him and said, I'm that girl. I, I will be here, I will pick up the poop, I'll have a smile on my face, I'm ready. And literally every morning, I woke up and just felt like the sun was shining directly on me. I am here for it. I loved every minute of being on set. I talked to the entire crew. I'd sit and talk to the focus puller on how his job worked, talk to the audio guy, how his job worked, just learning all of it. I will say after a couple months, I had the realization that this is a very roadie type lifestyle yes. that I was not cut out for. <laughs> What um, part of South Africa were you in, Marissa? Cape Town. So I was at University Cape of Cape Town. Town. Yeah. And, you know. Um, there was it, a lot it, going on in politics uh, right around that time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. A lot going on. And and so that that's enlightening as well. I think that helped. I think the combination of living in India for a couple of years, living in the Netherlands for a couple of years, and then living in South Africa for a couple of years, you know, really shaped the way I view the world. It mm -hmm. informed how how to truly be open-minded to other people and their life experiences. And that I think is one of the most influential um, themes through my work in nonfiction. And, you know, I when we have conversations about why do you do un unscripted television in particular, I think there is an incredible opportunity in unscripted television to help people see beyond their personal experience. And, you know, it's one of the great opportunities I had, I think at TLC in particular, where we really delved into other people's lives and made you care about people who you would never have met in your day-to-day -day life. And I remember trying to describe to producers, what's the difference between TLC and Bravo? And for Bravo, you know, I think there, there's a lot of envy watching and sometimes hate watching mm -hmm. that you're watching these women who are living these grand lives. And I used to describe it as an I wish network. I wish I could wear that outfit. I wish mm -hmm. I could say that. I wish I could flip a table. I wish I could do all of that. And TLC, by comparison, you would watch the characters and the people who allowed us into their lives and their world and think, I could be friends with that person. If I saw that person in the grocery store, I'd want to say hi because I feel like we could we could be friends. And that's again, people you wouldn't normally interact with or see in your everyday life and it changes the way you think about the world.
you were talking about Bravo being the envy watching I wish network cable and TLC being a, a peep into other people's lives that you would love to be friends with. What I remember from TLC is there was some very odd stories and lots of little people shows. Yes. Were you uh, were you on there during that time? Yes, very much so. Um, we did morbidly obese people. We did extra tall people. We did um, little people. Um, I have even done little people weight loss shows, a show that I did with uh, Bodega Productions that I adored called Big and Little about overweight little people and a um, trainer who was also a little person herself who helped them to lose weight because it's so hard on their joints. So it was a unique type of weight loss show. Um, and, and again, it's stuff we can all relate to. You know, I can say since COVID, I could definitely use with a trainer and a little bit of weight loss. So it's, it's, you look at someone that you think you maybe have nothing in common with and spend an hour watching them and feel empathy and love for them. I remember so distinctly um, the little couple who is also from Houston, Texas, where I'm from. And, you know, and there's, she's a doctor and you think I, I maybe don't have a lot to compare to with them in their everyday life. And I was never truly engaged in that show. But then right about the same time that I started my family, they started theirs. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching the episode and, and talking to the producers and the EPs within the network um, about them getting their children. They adopted two children. And I, so unlike me at the time, you know, I sat and watched this episode and just cried with the, the mother and the parents because they got that life milestone fulfilled. And you just, your heart connected with them for that yeah. very simple want of, I want a family. And, and it was just, I think, one of the first times that I found myself connecting with a series that honestly I wouldn't have watched in my in my personal life, but really it's it's the power of telling stories that people can relate to in heightened unusual circumstances. Yeah, nonfiction, unscripted, the world of uh, peephole. It's it's sort of like looking into bizarre stories, but fi finding a humanity and a common ground. Right. So one of the one of the shows that I'm most proud of from TLC is a series called My Big Fat Fabulous Life. And it's uh, just wrapped up its eighth season. Congrats. And the reason, thank you, the reason I'm proud of it is that we had done at TLC a number of programs that were um, what they sometimes refer to as um, body shock or anomaly programming, where you're really in shock watching these people in their journey. So my um, 600 pound life, is the series that was produced, I'm, I'm, you might be aware of it, um, where you're sh showing people who are morbidly obese and they desperately want to change in their life and they go on a diet to attempt to lose enough weight to even get gastric bypass surgery and what that journey is. And these, these shows are incredibly engaging but they're shocking in a lot of ways. And, and disturbing. It, and just, and sometimes, and they, they give a pretty negative viewpoint of people who are have different body issues. And I was convinced that we could do a positive spin on this. And I remembered years before, you might remember this as well, Style Network had a series called Ruby. 
-hmm. And I don't know if you remember that. And Ruby was a large- I also remember Style Network. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Exactly. Things that no longer exist anymore. You know. (laughs) And Ruby, you know, was a woman of size who had friends and, and had a life of her own. And she had a lot of complicated issues. But she was showing that you still are deserving of fun and happiness. And just because your size is different shouldn't change that. And it went to a lot of darker places dealing with her past, but it just kind of gave me hope that there were other stories out there like that. And I went out to production companies and said, find me this person. And for months and months and months, I waited and nobody brought anything. And eventually I kind of got a little feisty. And this was, you have to remember, I was, I was younger back then. So felt kind of constrained by being at a network and didn't feel like I had the power to do some of these things on my own. And finally just bit the bullet and was like, I'm gonna find this person myself. And spent hours upon hours and days digging through the internet, trying to find anything. And I came across this video that was just called Fat Girl Dancing. And there, and we're watching this woman who I believe was five foot one and at the time like 350 pounds, breaking it down to Jason Derulo, like you have never seen. And she doesn't really talk through it. So it's not like I was drawn into this great story that she had. But at the end, she kind of laughs and she has a Southern accent clearly. And she's like, I hope no one sees this. And, and I was like, I must find you. <laughs> and I spent the next couple of weeks basically stalking her, trying to get her to respond to me. She did. I met with her. I flew and met with her, met with her parents. And her parents are hoot. And she was really at this point in her life where she felt like a Bridget Jones character. Mm. She was turning 30, 30. and was had moved back to her parents' basement. Mm. And she had gained all this weight because she has um, uh, PCOS. Um, poly- what is PCOS? Polycystic ovarian syndrome, mm-hmm. um, which gives you a propensity to gain weight. And it was very shocking to her. Um, it also has a host of other health issues, but um, it was it was a turning point in her life. She wanted to date. She want and and she she really wanted to restart her life. But she had one simple wish to truly restart her life. And she was like, if I can do one step, that one step is I want to dance again. I just want to start dancing again. And she always felt like because of her size over the past couple of years, as it had grown and grown, that she couldn't dance anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's when I said there's a show here, I know it. And really fought internally at TLC to get the show up and running and off the ground. Um, I called Pilgrim Entertainment and handed her over to Pilgrim to shoot the taster and the sizzle. And from there, it just took off. We really shaped a world for this woman. And people resonated with her. She had, she started a campaign called No Body Shame and you know, she's like, look, sure, I have a medical issue that's adding to my propensity to gain weight, but I also have a lot of personal choices that are leading me to be bigger. And I'm okay with that. Like, she's like, I am not in a, in a situation where I am desperate to lose weight and desperate to change my life. I like me and I have fun. I have sex. I want to date. I am a free woman. Like it was like nothing you had ever seen on TV before. She was loud and 
proud and sexual and incredibly articulate about her beliefs on society and herself and her body. And it's, it was just this kind of momentous shift in how we saw people with, with body differences. What year was this? Oh my goodness. Um, is, this, is this the 90s or the early 2000s? When, when oh, no, 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 definitely in 2000s. It's, it's eight seasons, so, so 2000 and maybe 10? So yeah. it's, it's yeah. that recent 11. that people are talking about no body shame. Because I, re I mean, I remember body shaming was like a new comment. It was like yeah. a new colloquialism. Yeah. yeah, she ended so. up being on, you know, Good Morning America and the Today Show, and she now does these body positive cruises, and she has books, and um, so and is she smaller? She she is still a woman of size, but in a healthier healthier range for herself. She, okay. I think, I believe at one point she thought she was pre-diabetic, and so it was really important to her to keep maintain her size, but be healthier. And over the eight seasons, did she move out of the basement? Yes. <laughs> she moved out of the basement. She found love multiple times. Wow. Um, yeah, and just, I mean, lived her her larger than life life that was wonderful and is continues to be wonderful. Yeah. I want to back up because my listeners are, are a big range, but the two pods that are leading in analytics right now are my 18 to 22 aspiring on their career. I call it your yellow brick road to success. Okay. In arts okay. and entertainment. The other pod is my pod, the 45 to 60 pod. It's somewhere like that. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but and that would be my colleagues, people that are interested, people pivoting in their lives, mm -hmm. LinkedIn people, big, big following. So I have conversations for the youth because having a daughter who is in the music industry uh, with a DIY band, another son who just started college online, who's really interested in technology, but also making money. I hope he makes a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I speak to really a range of young people and then I'm always having conversations with people making pivots like me, which I call my triple pirouette and dosy -si do. And the big shots that I've interviewed in the last month, all after the interview had a huge career shift. Very interesting. Uh, and they are what everyone would think of at the pinnacle of a career position, right? Being able to make decisions, getting budget. So what I want to talk about is a couple things. First of all, when you say that you had this idea to develop the show and you handed it over to Pilgrim, which by the way, for those that don't know, is a well-known non-scripted uh, company that does a lot of great shows. How did you choose Pilgrim? What was that process? And, and what was your role being at a network at that time? How did you make that happen? Sure. So I... Um, okay, so how, how I got into television, I guess, is, is the first step. Um, when I left South Africa, I came back to the States, and I had two job interviews, both in Washington, D.C. One with the State Department Office of International Women's Issues, um, and the other was with a little network called Discovery Health Channel. And at the time- I pitched Discovery Health Channel. So you remember Rita Mullen? I do remember, yes. 
I love her deeply. She, That's who you worked with, Rita? I, I worked with Rita. Rita, I, I attribute my entire career to Rita um, for this reason. She, that she was an amazing lady, took my pitch with such grace and eloquence and kindness and had such good feedback. She is probably the most influential manager I ever had, not just in facilitating my career, but showing me how to manage others in a productive and positive way. One of my favorite statements that she ever made was I was, she hired me to be a coordinator. Um, and I can say that, you know, I had done tons of production. I did my own documentaries. I worked on feature films, but this thing called development, what was that? And the job that I had applied for was I think coordinator of development. I had no idea what development was. And, um, you know, and she, she really, took on the opportunity of if you have a spark and you're feisty and determined and smart, we can teach you and and hired me. Um, I also did get the job at the State Department. And wow. so I had to make a choice. <laughs> um, one required me to get a security clearance and wasn't going to pay me for six months. The other offered to pay me right away. And I had student loans and I was like, TV it is, guys. TV it is. TV it is. Um, but what she said to me was, I am not here to keep you under my wing forever. My job as your manager, and she was, I believe, VP at the time, uh, is to help grow you up into the best executive you can be and then watch you flourish. And, and that's, that's my job. My job is to, to get you to the point where you can leave me and do more. And I really took that to heart. And anyone who worked on my team after that I said the same thing and you know and just added my little two lines of and then you can hire me one day so you know i i really take that to heart in my management style as well that you know i'm not here to keep you under my wing i am here to train you up in whatever skill you might want to increase and grow and get you to a point that you can grow beyond me and grow bigger you know and and that's how i feel most television roles should be it's it's a growth it's a training and it's it's a step to your next opportunity um so i started at discovery health did development and learned all about it and fell in love with it it was funny because i think when i started i was convinced I would go back to hard production immediately. Um, but I didn't, I, I loved development and then left um, Discovery Health to go be a manager at a little production company called Brainbox Entertainment, who did a lot of programming for um, Food Network, HGTV at the time. I did a, a project for True TV and Sci-Fi. So it was a great experience to kind of branch out into other networks. Um, and so it was just getting my feet well wet in the field and one of the best advice, I think, uh, best pieces of advice that I received was don't stay to network your whole career. Even though you already had production in your background, even though you already had in the field experience in your background, switch, oh, I just hit the microphone, sorry. Eh, okay. Um, even though you had production in your background, switch back and forth between network work and in the field production work as often as you can, because it'll keep you relevant. It'll keep your skills fresh, It'll help you be more understanding of what's happening in the field when you're on the network side and help you be more understanding of what's happening on the network side when you're in the field on the production side. And, and I really took that to heart. So 
I stayed out in production for a while. Um, after Brainbox, I went over to Storyhouse Productions, which is an international production company. Um, after living abroad for so long and working in media for so long in all these different countries, it was honestly a thrill to be able to put that to practical use in my career. Uh, Storyhouse is based in Germany and they did a ton of international productions. And I was able to just dig deep and jump in head first into all of it. Um, we were producing projects for Australia, for Germany, for England, for the US. We opened an office in Canada to do cheap co-pros for crime. Um, I got to do Discovery Channel's, one of their first, if not their first, 3D projects, sourcing 3D cameras from Hong Kong. It was awesome. Um, and, and I got to learn how to really manage teams spread all across the world with different experiences, different cultures, and help unite them in a common goal and see television beyond my little bubble on the East Coast to see it as a global um, product, which I think that the world's now caught up to that, but at the time people really weren't thinking that way. No. Um, so then when I, um, funny enough, Rita Mullen ended up at TLC Network and called me one day and said, hey, want to come back to a network? And uh, um, she said she had an opportunity at TLC and would I consider coming to work for her again? And it seemed like great timing. And uh, Is I, that where you met Andy Strauser? Yes, yes, that's where I met Andy, yes. We go way back and he's wonderful, wonderful. He's a ray so, of positivity. Yeah, so uh, just for my listeners, we'll, we'll be doing um, some highlights of the different conversations, but that's become one of my most popular interviews. And well, he, I think he it's is a viral is, star. That's part, partly why he's so popular. Uh, like he's engaging, he's good looking, he's fun, and he knows that world so well, the world of social media and how to cross that over into the digital platforms. Exactly. So yes. what did you, what, how did you know each other at TLC? What was he doing? What were you doing? So I was on the East Coast and okay. he was on the West Coast and he was um, running talent. So he would find people to put in our shows. He would find people to create shows around. Um, you know, he, he was helping us kind of stay up on the latest trends and and really get to know the right people for each of these shows. So if we're doing a wedding show, he'd find that personality that could really pop. Or if we had a character or a shop already, he'd really work with them to help them flourish for our network. How did you like, um, because you you dosey doed between being in the production side and also in the network side and this is all obviously way before people were working at home people went to the to the office and had teams can you just describe that you know what you liked what you didn't like because i literally have only worked in an office two years of my life i have always been uh in the trenches if you will i get hired and i go to work whether that's in a foreign country or here my work is really wherever this is my phone you know yeah. but uh, I worked for two years as an agent and it was different going every day to the same office place 
And also the agency I worked with, I call them a, a really in the box and I've already, I've always sort of bounced out of boxes. But I'd love to know from someone like yourself who's really a person who's been in the trenches all over the world and has such a broad cultural awareness, how did you like working in an office, AADC, and then here at Viacom? I will say that Discovery and Viacom are like oil and water. They could not be more different. But the production company world, people used to ask me all the time, which do you prefer, production company life or network life? And I said, they're, they're so different and they each have their, their own good and their own bad, right? Um, being on the production company side, I mean, I'd find myself working on a airboat in the middle of a Florida swamp at four in the morning where our you know engine just went out and a guy who had maybe, a, I'll just say, a local, <laughs> an authentic <laughs> local um, was putting out the fire with his t-shirt. And, and I remember sitting there thinking, I might die here. Because we were all alone in the middle of the swamp at three o'clock in the morning. Wow. Um, you know, you don't have that experience at the network. <laughs> you were very well cared for and pampered. And I loved the nitty gritty of working at a production company. I loved getting dirty. I loved going out and just being there and getting it done. The one thing that I say I, I often miss about being at a production company is personal responsibility. That when you, as, as the, head of a, the head of development at a production company, you come up with that show, you find that talent, you make that sizzle, you pitch it to the network, you sell it, and if you sell it, you get to hire more people. And if you come home and you haven't sold it, you may have to let someone go. It's all your responsibility. It sits on your shoulders. And there is great reward in that, huge loss in that as well. Um, and at the network, you don't have that singular sense of responsibility when you even my big fat fabulous life you know a show that i found the talent i you know hand it to the production company i you know help build it it still isn't my show it's a group there's, win a group win a group win yes so there's you know it's it's uh, wins have many parents losses are orphans <laughs> it's so true yeah so true and so so that was that was hard to deal with um i think also in um, a development role, you know, even if you create a show, it's it's not your baby. You don't own it for forever. And so, you know, there there was a series at TLC I created called Sex Sent Me to the ER. And- You just it, posted about that. I did, I did. Just because I had so many people call me that it was trending and they had seen it on Hulu and they were like, isn't this your show? And I was yes. like- yeah, and it's one of these shows that no one believed in, uh, except me. And and it came from, and it kind of goes back to my my philosophy about just development in general. Was this a Discovery? This was at TLC, and um, they later aired it at Discovery Health. And Discovery that's I remember it uh, aligning with Discovery Health because I remember when I called in after a while and they said we're shifting our focus. And we're doing stories that are a little more shocking and yeah. less it, just It was the highest series ever for Discovery wow. Health at the time. Wow. Um, and what's what's fascinating about it, give you a little insight into network world. Yes. Um, 
So I could not get them to greenlight the show. And it, it originated from a great dinner party story. You know, you, you go to a dinner party and everyone's got their one good story. And right. a, a couple who's a friend of ours told this incredible story of how they ended up in the ER. And I was like, there's a show here. And, um, you know, tried desperately to get the network to, to pick it up. They just thought it was a little too salacious. They weren't into it. Eventually I wore them down and they picked up, I think maybe eight episodes and while I w was out on maternity leave, I wasn't there to defend it, and they cut it down to four episodes. And they aired those four episodes in a throwaway time slot over the Christmas, ho the, the winter holidays, with no um, promotion, with no lead-in, nothing. And it popped over a one. So for, for those who don't know, over a million viewers. Um, found this show from nothing and became obsessed over it. So I, during the holidays, I'm getting these frantic emails from David Zaslov, the head and CEO of all Discovery Networks, um, saying, we need more immediately. And he commissioned, I believe 50 or 54 additional episodes. Wow, 54. And this was a show they didn't believe in so strongly that they cut it and just threw it away. And it just goes to show nobody knows. Nobody knows no. what's gonna work. I can't say that I know every time, but when you have the kind of show that if you call up a friend and you tell them this story, it's the best story that they're gonna tell at a dinner party or they're gonna yes. tell other people. It's what's that story that you can't wait to tell again. And, and I learned that from Rita you know, at Discovery Health, when we did, I didn't know I was pregnant. Yeah, uh, I remember that too. That was a big launch, mm -hmm. a big decision for her. Um, okay, I'm, I have a million thoughts. One was, I remember pitching Phil Gurren a show and he said, I'm, I'm gonna share it with my friends over matzo ball soup at Passover. <laughs> and I was like, isn't that sort of a soft pitch? But, you know, it was sort of like the game off at Passover, sharing ideas. And, you know, for a minute it went up the ladder. But uh, I wanna know that story. I wanna know that story about what got you interested in, in setting up a show called Sex Sent Me to the ER. I mean, I, I think it goes to my philosophy and development in general. You know, when I was at a production company, when I was at production companies, I used to kind of talk to the teams. I, one of the things I also really love about production companies is everyone's there to learn. So we used to do this thing at Storyhouse that I'd call beer and chips. That every Friday, when, you know, it's Friday after three, nobody wants to work anyways. I'd get everybody into a room and we'd have a whole bunch of beer and a whole bunch of chips and watch shows. Either like the best thing, highest rated thing that premiered that week, the lowest rated thing that premiered that week, or something that represented a different type or different way of doing production and TV. And then we'd slowly tear it apart. Why did they make this choice? What do you think of that choice? How could we do it differently? Is there an idea here we could adapt for another network? What do we like? What don't we like? How do we feel? All of it. And right. you're essentially teaching people how to develop because it's not something you're born with. You know, I learned from Rita that you have to see beyond yourself 
and be able to see what's a good show and a good idea for a mass audience or the audience that you're programming for. And as you know, Michelle, I program for many audiences that do not represent me, that that I am not representative of. You know, when um, I was at Storyhouse, I was predominantly doing programs for middle-aged men in the middle of the country. I definitely was not that at the time. When I went to TLC, I, I was not a mother yet, and so didn't connect with that audience, hadn't really watched TLC before I got there, um, and had great success, obviously, programming for them. When I got to MTV and VH1, I had unfortunately aged out of that audience as well. And, and most recently at BET, you know, I, I clearly am not representative of that audience, but could really understand. Yeah, for those of you who are only listening to the podcast and aren't seeing beautiful Marissa on the screen, she is white. She has bluish hair. Actually, it's sort of like, what do you call that when it starts dark and comes down? Ombre. Ombre. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, what I remember about meeting Marissa at BET was I think she was the only white person on that level. And you could, you could go up the elevator and there was different Viacom networks, right? And yeah. uh, and I was I was impressed and surprised. Yeah, you know it. It was one of those situations where, um, when I was working at MTV and VH1, I was on the East Coast, and and I wanted to go to the West Coast and was looking for another opportunity. And the the head of talent at the time said, "Have you considered BET?" And and I had done African American skewing projects at TLC, actually. Um, at the time, it was their highest rated African-American skewing project um, called The Sisterhood about um, first ladies, which it, for those who don't know, it's the wives of preachers, pastors um, in large churches, African-American churches. Um, and some of the women were, were also pastors themselves and um, doctors of religion themselves. Um, and it was a great effort that we did and I learned a lot from it. I did it with True TV, uh, sorry, um, they're now, uh, True original, oh goodness. True is now truly original, that's it. They're now truly original, but they were true entertainment at the time, um, Glenda and Steven. Um, and so, you know, I had experience making those shows, but clearly I wasn't representative of the audience. And I am one of those people who truly believes in um, the lens by which stories are told. And, you know, especially as a woman who, you know, has, has lived abroad, I, I'm keenly aware of the gaze of the other and, and how that manifests in telling a story that isn't authentic. And, you know, it's, there are these moments where I laugh with my parents that I have, my degree was in sociology and the study of women and gender, which they thought meant I would be poor and homeless for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I'm like, this comes into play almost on a daily basis in my work in, in nonfiction, because nonfiction is all about authenticity, all about truth in storytelling. And for me, that's the perspective of the people telling that story. So. When, when we were talking about BET and my response was, you know, why would they consider me? Um, they were said, go talk to the president, go talk to, you know, the EVP, see what they have to say. And I had a complete open mind about it and talked to them. And what they were looking for was really someone to come in and overhaul strategy, overhaul structure, you know, work on process and change the way that BET was perceived in the industry. And, and not because I'm some savior on a hilltop and could do all of these things, but that, you know, with, with 
the right kind of proper thought that I could use the team and help them just really grow from where they were. You know, I you had a proven track record at the same company, I mean, Viacom yeah. family, right? So they they knew that you were results oriented. Right. And and I and I listened to what they wanted and thought this is such an incredibly unique opportunity because at TLC um, or within the Discovery Networks or at MTV, it's all about waking up in the morning and looking at the ratings and say, did we win? Mm-hmm. You know, you want to win every day. And at BET, I was overwhelmed by the fact that every single person who works at that network wakes up in the morning and thinks, I want to do good. I want to make the world better. And I believe I can do it through content. And I, I drank that Kool-Aid full force and woke up every, moved my entire family across the country and really believed that I was going to help make TV that mattered. I was going to help really bring to the forefront these voices that I believed needed to be heard on a larger scale. And, you know, that, that were already so eloquently and forcefully getting their message across. But quite frankly, until Black Lives Matter really hit the national consciousness in the way that it has over the past couple months, um, it, it wasn't getting the traction that that it needed. And so one of the greatest, I think, um, kismet type, type opportunities was the fact that once Black Lives Matter really became a national conversation and a national initiative, BT had been doing this work for years and and was ready and waiting to help America really get to the place that it needed to be. And and it wasn't new for them. I mean, it's the purpose of the network as a whole. And and they were just, it it was just this kind of miraculous experience. Um, So yeah, so so coming to to BT, um, I think I think maybe the most significant thing that I was able to do was to change, let me think how, the best way to say this I think is is that the work being done at BET is A-level and should always have been considered A-level. They should be seen as a number one network, seen as a number one content creator, and, and there was never any doubt in my mind that that they were at that place and we just needed to get everybody else caught up. And so how did you do that? So it's, that's really a lot of PR too, not just for inner internal exactly. work, that's external PR and, and communication. And um, it, it's, it's almost like a perception marketing scheme, right? A hundred percent. You, you hit the nail on the head. Exactly. And we'll, we'll get into your experience as an agent because it, that comes into play as well. Okay. So there, there is a um, ranking that's released every year. It's I think been released maybe the past four years from Impact, which is the kind of organization that that is grouping all of the production companies in North America and Variety. And it lists all the networks, all the streaming services, all the platforms, basically in order of how well um, they're perceived as a whole and how well they're perceived in various departments. But those predom- those departments predominantly lean towards development, production. I mean, the, the things that they're ranked on are as big as ability to oversee production and represent their network well, all the way as little as 
How well do your executives produce notes that are that production companies can understand and follow through with? So it's it's pretty broad ranging. And when I came on board at BET, they were bottom of the list and pretty low down there. And so I knew this was a good marker for us. And so step one, once we kind of realigned the, the organization and you know ensured that everyone was working um, in, in accordance with, with their role and their skill level and, and really kind of optimized everyone's um, role, I was able to, to start this kind of campaign. So you're, you are exactly right. We, I gathered our development team together and we basically did kind of a, a whistle stop tour, you know, and went to New York, went to all the agencies and went in, in LA to all the agencies and did presentations where we talked about who we are as a network, what our programming stands for and who our development team is. And really quite frankly saying, look, we get it. 99% of production companies are Caucasian owned. And we understand that we are an African-American network and that might create a situation where people aren't pitching us their best ideas because they think maybe they don't apply. And I had the agents look at our development team and said, look, I need you to bring your production companies who have great talent, great worlds, an incredible format. And look at this team, this skilled and um, highly qualified team who will then contextualize those shows for our audience. I don't need you or your production company to, to try to do that. I need you to make a great show. Our team can do that and really help your shows speak to our audience in a meaningful way. And I'll tell you, after that those tours, we came back and within the next two weeks, we had something like 40 production companies reach out to schedule meetings that hadn't been uh, speaking to BET in the past couple years or had never spoken to BET. And then Real Screen was shortly thereafter. I brought my entire development team, about five people, and our schedules were slammed. And that was the moment where I had agents and producers saying, we feel this vibe, this vibe that BET is on fire and we want to be a part of it. And these were producers who never really wanted to be a part of it before. Mm -hmm. And um, those are moments when you think, okay, this is happening. Um, and so, you know, by the time um, I left- I'm patting myself. I'm patting myself like you, patting on the shoulder, patting on the back, because yeah. I can oh, I imagine too, um, the optics of that too, right? Leading right. the BET tour, like you call it the whistle stop, uh, it's, it's like the upfronts, right? For pilot yeah. season. I mean, yeah. that's that's a big deal. I, I, it's nice that, uh, nice, I mean, it's a big deal that you had the support of Viacom too, to do that, because that's not inexpensive. True, true. I mean, I, I think it's it was something that hadn't really been done um, significantly before by the network, and and the agents hadn't been engaged with our network in that way before. So it was it was a bit revelatory, I think, on on both sides. And you know, um, when I was at Real Screen, God, it feels like a year ago, um, last uh, February, January, um, the results from the most recent ranking came out, and we were firmly middle of the pack and most improved. Wonderful. And that was the moment where 
I genuinely felt we did it. And I, I was with a bunch of producers and heads of production companies at the time and w just had this huge smile on my face. And they looked at me and said, we voted for you guys. And I, I, and I, I didn't really understand how it all worked at the time. And they said, we, we feel that difference. We're so excited about where BET is and where they're going. And, you know, it, it really felt like that moment of we did it. Yeah. And, and so I think a big part of, you know, being at BET was also knowing, look, I, I came here for a purpose, accomplished that purpose. Now I'm excited for what's next. So um, it's it was such an incredible experience and taught me more than I ever could have imagined. Um, and I'm so proud of the work that we did. The the first show that I was able to to get greenlit uh, was also kind of revelatory for BET at the time. BET was not. Um, was had leaned more into entertainment and comfort programming and this is you got to remember this is before everything that's just happened in our world this was over two years ago we had a show our first show um called cop watch america um, <laughs> we did it with critical content um and um it basically looked at the umbrella organization across america of individuals who get up every day arm themselves with cameras and cell phones and go out and police the cops for two reasons. One, to just make sure that police are adhering to their social duty, but also to help people understand what their personal rights are. If you're being frisked against the wall, do you know what your rights are? And they'd yell out your rights, they'd have a video copy of what happened to just kind of bring truth to power. And you know, now that seems like such a common thing. It's it's so funny, but at the time it was wild that these people did this. They were superheroes with cell phones and really putting their lives on the line every day in a way that other people weren't. Um, you know, and and we had this one woman tell the story that she said, "I have two teenage boys with black skin and I watch them leave the house every day and I don't know if they're gonna come back. And if I don't go out and fight for their right to live, who else is? And that's when you know, this isn't just a story. This isn't just, you know, an unscripted project. This is potentially going to change the way people think. And at the time, Live PD was a cultural phenomenon in America. It was the highest rated show, it was pop culture, it was huge for A&E. And we felt like we were the other side of that conversation that no one was representing. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, even at BET, which is an African-American network, it was hard to get that show greenlit because it was very controversial. We had a lot of talks with legal and obviously press and you know it it what it felt edgy and it felt risky and it felt hard. Um, and I think what was interesting to see is all the people we featured, of course, the main leaders of the movement that are now all over the news are the key proponents of changing America, actually changing America. And um, so when everything started happening, really changing, it was wonderful to see BT re-air those episodes. We had a series, a documentary series called Finding Justice as well that they re-aired. And, you know, in a way that it felt like kind of harsh social justice programming initially, now it felt so topical, so fresh, so current. And I just could not be more proud to have been a part of that. 
So one of one of the stipulations of me agreeing to go to BET was that there should be no world where I, as a fair-skinned woman, should be the lens by which stories are told at BET, ever. And I would never take pitch meetings alone. I would always have a colleague with me because though I know how to make a great show and know how to identify a great show, I am not our audience and I am not our lens. And, and I think the moment you as an executive or I as an executive release that hold is the moment you truly embrace the audience that you're working with and, and then the network that I was working for, that you know I am here to do a job and I am here to make sure those voices that are authentic are amplified. And, you know, and so in addition to, to taking those initiatives in development, I also ensured on our productions that you know, when I came in, I had initially wanted um, kind of a writer conversation that we'd have a percentage of each of our productions being minority run, specifically African-American. Um, they were not open to it at the time, but now they're starting to make movements towards that at Viacom CBS, and I could not be more excited. Um, you know, we actively sought, we kept a database of showrunners and production crew to ensure that we're telling stories, we're telling um, people's lives through an authentic lens. And it yes. was such a major priority for me and for the network. I think it's so, also funny that yeah. we, we get a lot of feedback from the BET audience that they thought BT was run by white people and they were angry about it. And what they didn't see was the world that I saw every day, which was the exact opposite, you know, that that I was the rarity, that BT is an authentic network that is speaking for its audience. I see, I hear little children. Sorry. No, <laughs> yes. don't apologize. Are they homeschooling today? Yes, we are doing virtual schooling and uh, it, it is some days it's wonderful and other days when you have problems with the internet, it could not be more painful. And but your husband yeah, works I, from I home have, too, right? My husband works from home too. We have a full house and a dog. So three kids and, and a husband and a dog and it's, it's a lot. <laughs> three kids? Three, yes. I'm, I'm from a family of three girls, but I have two myself, and I can't imagine, like, having room for that third. <laughs> that was the dog. Aww. Yeah. And I'm so grateful uh, to be very close to my kids and to watch them now in their independent, more independent lives, you know, this stage. I have to tell you, you you'll embrace it. I love, I loved every minute of having little kids. I imagine they're, what, like 8 to 12, your children? Um, they're, they're eight to four, uh, sorry, nine to four, nine to four. Oh, you go down. You're very young. Yeah, That's I right. have littles. Yeah, littles, yeah. Littles. So I, I am excited to see the people they are going to turn into. But we're, I we're remember still when we were in our meeting, you were checking your phone because you were making sure someone could pick one of them up from daycare. Which is, which it's interesting. My husband and I have this conversation often. Yeah. That how is parenting perceived in our industry or in industries as a whole. And mm. I often get very frustrated that as a woman, if I'm doing a conference call while I'm doing pickup, you know, it's often perceived that I am 
disorganized, unreliable. Why couldn't I have made accommodations to ensure that that wasn't happening? And oftentimes seen as messy. Yet when my husband does it, he's he's applauded that, oh, look at you, you're such a great dad, you're multitasking, you're so you know multidimensional, you must be a great leader. And it's fascinating because he now notices it and it just infuriates me to no end. And now luckily, I mean, I will say one of the benefits of the pandemic is I feel like it was an equalizer. It is such now, an equalizer. Now yes. everybody's got kids on their cameras and it's accepted and it's it's almost seen behind that curtain of I can be an executive. I can be incredibly effective, organized and disciplined and still have kids. Isn't it amazing? Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean like I said those two years that I worked in the agency and it's 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 a number of years ago already but mine were smaller you know and uh and not only that i had a unique offer because the word at the time agent meant something different than the word director of the department so i opted for director of the department then they kept handing me departments because like yourself i proved myself in a short amount of time i never thought of myself as a salesperson i thought of myself as somebody who was a connoisseur of talent and really knew my niche market because I come from a dance background. I essentially was hired to be the director of dance and choreography. I took 800 clients and squeezed it down to 200. Didn't make a lot of friends initially because you know 20% is your margin. But uh, but I remember it was really a learning thing to like balance the mom phone and then I had a separate phone for other company that I was consulting with and then trying to do basically a full-time job in three days mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know it was incredibly challenging but I did it and I, I, I don't know many men that have to do that uh, maybe there's some single fathers now because I actually have a client who's a writer editor and working with me and he always says hey could we talk after one I've got to pick up from daycare and I'm like yes we can and go and that's, dad. That's yeah. my husband. I 100% have a partner and you know, a, a partner in joy, a partner in love, a partner in crime, the whole bit, you know? And uh, it's, it, there's been an article going around um, since the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg mm -hmm. about how she would constantly be called by her child's school. And, event, and this was while she was doing like five different jobs. And her husband, who's also a lawyer, but had more flexibility than her, um, she they called her, and you have to remember, this is quite a while ago. Right. And she said, it's his turn, call my husband, his number's there too. And they started calling him. And more than that, she noticed that they would call less because they felt his time was more valuable and they wouldn't want to drag him to the school. Of course. For the littlest thing. And so I will say that when we first moved out here, um, I was working, I mean, 15 hour days. Sure. I would get in the office at seven, I'd leave at seven, I'd work on the, you know, and my, my husband was still working East Coast hours and was working from home. And so he was the primary caregiver when we first moved here. So the teachers would call me and my immediate response was, call my husband. Call my husband. He's the one who will be there. He's the one who's doing pickup. He's the one who's making dinner, um, you know, and and it was wild, I think, for him because prior to that, I think I, I was very much more of the, the person who got, was on the end of the phone call. And, and he 
was excited to do it. I think he had his own personal revelations of how incredibly taxing that is. But it really helped us kind of get that equal partnership that now we both get called, we're both accountable, we're both equally involved in the parenting and work. And, you know, our both value kind of the intensity of our careers. And it's it's one of those things that I've seen time and time again in my my mentors within the industry and in other industries, women I admire is, you know, if you're looking for someone to spend the rest of your life with and you want to really thrive in your career, find someone who will be your true partner. Mm-hmm. And support and you. Not easy to do. Not easy to do. Not easy to do. I left out. Not easy to do. But, uh, you know, I grew up in a Midwest household, so I always believed in that. Uh, I believed and my parents were together, you know, forever until my mom passed. And, uh, you know, uh, I I went through a divorce three and some three and change years ago. And you were talking about the great the great equalizer. Uh, People who know me very well, intimately know that I was going through a huge pivot on so many levels before this. And while nobody is glad to have a world pandemic, there is something like you say, the lens is so different. It's shifted in such a quick time. The graciousness, the kindness, the courtesy of everybody I have reached out to. I have had only one person say they couldn't be interviewed. They were doing a Forbes interview. I said, okay, I get it. You know? <laughs> I don't want to compete with Forbes. But everybody I've asked, and I've asked, like yourself, people of yeah. prominence, has been incredibly gracious and courteous. Pitches out of people's offices, out of their living rooms with the kids. Um, and the perception also of a person of my age and time also making pivots and looking to make changes, both in work and in personal life, is not. I don't know. I felt before there was a little bit of a judgment about it. And now I feel people embrace it, are proud of it. I have so many people who have said, oh my God, Michelle, you are the hashtag hustle. You are a badass. You are so resilient. Oh my God, look what you've been able to do. And, you know, every day I face the world and I have to invent myself. And I've been through this morphing like 12 times. So I can totally appreciate your story of being a world traveler and like you said, a bleeding heart, especially a Jewish bleeding heart from Texas who goes to India and, you know, Amsterdam. I mean, you know, and then now a mother and shifting gears and working at Black Entertainment Television as a white Jewish woman. I think that's fantastic. I know you can't give me a definitive answer, but if you could write a ticket for what's next for Marissa, what would it be? <laughs> Look, I think I think we are in an incredible time. This is the golden age of content. And so when I look around, you know, this has been going on for years where people say the sky is falling, cut, network is over, cable's over. No, it's content. And, you know, I, I've thought about when people ask me, do, do you come up with a five or 10 year plan? I could never have imagined how SBOD would have transformed the industry, AVOD, all of it, 
10 years ago. So I look at this and say, there is opportunity in creativity. There is opportunity in proven skill. And there is opportunity in imagination. And I could not be more excited for the projects that are coming out, seeing the launch of, you know, Peacock and Disney Plus and, you know, where Netflix has taken us back into documentaries, into my old love that I never thought I'd be able to have a long-term career in. Um, this is, it is so exciting. And then the fact that all of this has become global. So all of the networks who are launching their SVODs, you know, you look at Discovery, you look at, um, obviously NBC, they're, they're global. And so I feel like it, it's finally this culmination, again, kind of going back to, to my initial statement from college that you pick up these skills along the way with the hope that one day when a, an opportunity that really speaks to you comes along, you'll have the skill set and be ready to run. And, and that's kind of what I feel like right now. So you're open and you'll see what happens, basically, what comes your way. Yeah. I have a feeling you you might go in the Disney direction. I mean, that's one thing you haven't done yet is kid and family programming, right? It's true. And and I am very well versed in it right now. Let right? Me I mean, you, you have a household full of your of your best demographic audience if you want to go in that direction. That would be fun. Um, what what would you love to wrap up with uh, that you could share our 18 to 22 ambitious people going into film television the arts and those people like myself who might be going through shifts you know i think it's it's maybe my personal mantra which you know has carried me through because you gotta again you gotta remember i grew up in in a state in a city in a town where this was not working in television working in entertainment was not within the realm of possibility but it was my passion so you know i tell your audience work hard follow your passion and opportunity will find you well it's perfect slogan since my show is called passion to power right <laughs> i didn't pay her five bucks under the table Excuse by it. the way <laughs> we're on zoom i couldn't have done it <laughs> slip for five dollars it's true it's true that's true marissa you are not only as impressive as when i first met you but you are such a whole person i have such a better picture of you as a dynamic human being and um boy i you're, you're gonna be the next rita mullins you're gonna be the mentor you are because um there's so many young women and young men too you know who need role models and who need this kind of clear-cut advice and the kindness and direction and what i love is that every time i interview someone that i call a hashtag big shot i had evan shapiro last week i had the the twins pask off um it's this crazy trajectory nobody has like wakes up in the morning and says i'm gonna go to school and do this and i'll end up at that job Right, Maybe exactly. in the medical profession. There's so few professions where, you know, people that do what we do are multi-hyphenates. Yes. And have incredible backgrounds of training. So I encourage people to dig within, find that passion, and then get the powerful people to support you, your mentors, yeah. and take advice and really listen to it. And, and be open to the criticism if it's if it's given to you in a, in a good way and a Absolutely. kind way and a supportive way. And then 
open your heart and open your arms like we say in yoga because you just never know where you're going to end up but it really does start with that that passion absolutely marissa i'm going to sign off with you would you just say your name one more time for our audience sure marissa levy marissa we will be in touch thank you thank you so much